0: You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church Podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. All right, if you want to grab a copy of God's Word, if you don't have one, there should be one under a chair nearby. You can take one from someone else if, they, if you have to. Do what you got to do. We would love to have God's Word in front of you there. <clears throat> We're going to get right to it because we're going to go through all of Mark chapter 3. We're going through a sermon series through the gospel of Mark. Uh, Mark is a biography of Jesus, and so we're just, we're just following Jesus around, and Mark is fast. Mark does not waste any words. The scenes change fast, and, uh, and so we're going to try to get through 35 verses today. Uh, so we're partway in. Jesus' ministry is blowing up, and he's starting to encounter a little bit of resistance from different people. Um, And so the title of today's message is Jesus' foes, fans, and family. And we're going to see those three categories of people uh, play prominently in our text today, and they're going to play prominently throughout the rest of the gospel. We're going to see kind of who they are today. As we go through chapter 3, I want you to notice a progression here. Ben, if you want to put this slide up for me. I want you to notice uh, how Mark is going to use the geography of where Jesus is to kind of tell a message. It's going to go kind of up and down. He's going to start in a synagogue. With uh, with some foes, he's got some. He's, he's got kind of a rivalry that's beginning to brew between him and the religious leaders. Then we're going to see him go out by the sea with a big crowd of people. Then he's going to go up on a mountain and call some apostles to be near him. Then he's going to come back down to the city of Capernaum and be near the sea again. And then he's going to be in a house. So it's kind of like inside, outside, up, and then back down. And I think Mark is doing that to kind of for us to sort of picture ourselves in the story. Picture yourself in a synagogue, in a house of worship like this. Picture yourself by the sea in a crowd. Picture yourself up on the mountain with Jesus as he calls these people together. Picture yourself in a crowded city uh, among these like, the, you know, with just all of the rumors that are flying around about Jesus. And then picture yourself, am I inside or outside the house? And we're going to figure out a lot of what's kind of surprising about who's who. Who are really the foes of Jesus? It's not who you would expect. Who are the fans of Jesus? Man, it's just a whole bunch of them. A whole bunch of people that are sort of like Interested in the spectacle of Jesus and it's not entirely sure what they actually believe about Jesus and then who are the actual family of Jesus because that's surprising. This whole narrative about Jesus is that Jesus is surprising. He's the servant king. Those those sound like words that don't go together. He's the God man. He's going to save by suffering. He's going to win by losing. He's going to call people. Um, in a really remarkable way and there's just this irony and I want you to put yourself in the scenes here so I'm gonna have some pictures of some of the places where these events are happening most likely because I want you to picture yourself as part of this narrative as we read it so watch for the locations and watch for the characters and how Jesus is exposing who they really are and how that's surprising and throughout this message think about which category am I in okay so let's go ahead and read Mark chapter 3. I think it'll be on the slides as well, but you can. it's good for you to look at the words either on the screen or in, on paper in, in front of you or on your phone. And here it is. Again, he, meaning Jesus, entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with, eager, with, anger, sorry, with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him on how to destroy him. Verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, who he gave, gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bo, Boad, Boanerges, I don't know, that is the sons of thunder. "'Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus "'and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. "'Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. "'And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, "'He is out of his mind. "'And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, "'He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons.' And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan rises up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they under utter but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin for they were saying he had an unclean spirit and his mother and his brothers came and standing outside they sent to him and called him and a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you and he answered them who are my mother and my brothers and looking out At those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this picture of Jesus. And God, I pray that we would see him vividly through your word and that we would draw out what we need from this text. We won't get to everything, but we want to just get the impression of what it's like to follow Jesus and then decide where we stand with him. And so Lord, we pray that you would reveal our hearts, that we would see ourselves in the story, and God, that Jesus would become really real to us, that he would perhaps even call us to himself. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so three categories of people. Did you you see him in there? We've got the foes, which would be the Pharisees, the Herodians, the scribes, the demons, and even to some extent, his biological family, who's calling him crazy. We've got fans, we've got these crowds that are just like packing in around him, almost crushing him, it says. And then we have family. We have his family, his followers, those whom he calls to himself, his true mother and brother and sisters. And, uh, and so we're going to see who those are. The fans make up the biggest group now, but eventually Jesus is going to split that group. There's not going to be many fans left. They're either going to be foes or family. They're either going to be followers. In fact, he's not going to have many of those by the end. Jesus is not interested in just creating a giant social media platform. He's not just trying to create sort of a popular movement. He's calling a new family. He's calling a new family together. And so let's look, first of all, at the synagogue with his foes, verses three or chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal, on, heal him on the Sabbath. So we've got, we've got some bad actors here, right? They're coming to worship to watch Jesus and make sure he doesn't break any of the rules, right? And I'm wondering if this withered hand guy isn't sort of like a plant. Like, let's just see. Jesus seems to have compassion on people, Let's put someone who needs compassion and just see if he breaks the rules, see if he does work on the Sabbath, because that, that was what was being debated here, is there was 39 different categories of work that they had put together uh, that were prohibited on the Sabbath. So what's, what's tricky is that in Exodus chapter 20, verse 10, it tells us that on the Sabbath you're not to do any work, but the Old Testament actually doesn't define very clearly what work is. And so out of a genuine desire to obey God and to honor the Sabbath, They came up with the 39 malakos, which are these 39 categories of work. And now what what had happened is that instead of the Sabbath becoming a place of rest, it became a rule-following way to decide who was in and who was out. As opposed to it being the Sabbath being a gift to man, Sabbath became a weapon to hit people with. And so that's what's happening here, is they know that Jesus has a habit of healing on the Sabbath. He's breaking their rules about work, not God's. And so perhaps they have planted this man to see if Jesus might break one of their rules so that then they can condemn him, because Sabbath breaking is punishable by death. And Jesus steps right into the trap intentionally. He takes the bait, right? And he calls the man forward and says, come here. Now, can you imagine what it's like to be that man? You're probably pretty self-conscious. You probably have been, you know, your issues are pretty public. People know about them. They've seen them. And Jesus makes a spectacle of you, calls you to the front, and goes, let's all see your jacked-up hand, if there even is much of a hand there, right? Jesus brings him up. He says, come here, and he uses the man as an object lesson. He just goes ahead and takes the bait, steps right into their trap, and he says to them, is it lawful? Let's talk about rules for a second, right? Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? And Jesus puts us us in this category of, like, everything that we're doing— is either good or bad, right? It's either good or to do harm. There's the sins of omission and there's sins of commission. Sometimes we do the wrong thing. Sometimes we don't do the right thing. And that's what he's putting here. And he puts it in real extreme terms of going, is it, is it right to, do, to save life or to kill? What is the Sabbath for? What are the rules for? Is it for condemning people? Is the Sabbath for condemning people? Or is it a place of rest and restoration? Jesus is going to basically implying that the Sabbath is meant to be a time of restoration. So to heal, of course, would be in keeping with the Sabbath. It's restoring the man's dignity. It's restoring his humanity. Of course, that's sort of implied here, right? But they are trying to weaponize a man's um, a man's infirmity to try to trap Jesus. They're using this man. They're abusing him. They're leveraging his ailment to see if they can't trap Jesus. It's just gross, and Jesus sees it. And that's what he says in verse 5. He looked around at them with anger and grief at their hardness of heart. So he is angry at them. Angry at them that they would weaponize the brokenness of people in order to, to create a religious point, that they're missing the point. They don't care about this image bearer, they don't care about this man. They care about their own rules, their own dignity, their own position. And Jesus is threatening that. So he calls them out and they don't answer because they don't have a good answer. They don't have a good answer to this question. They know technically the rules that they put together, but they don't know the spirit. They don't know the heart of God here. And he's angry at them. But he's also grieved. He is sad for them at what they have become. That their religiosity, their pursuit of God, their study of the scriptures has actually hardened their hearts. They know a lot of things about God, but they have their hearts far from God. And so he's angry at them for how they're deceiving people, for how they're using people. And then he's also grieved at what their sin has actually done to their own hearts. He looked around at them with anger and grieved in his own heart. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and the hand was restored. What an awesome thing, right? They have just seen part of the curse reversed right in front of them. Who can do that? God can do that. And they're missing the point because exactly what do they do right then? Is Instead of bowing down and worshiping him, of going, wait, the one has come who can deal with all of the problems of our sinful world, what do they do? Verse nine, This is the irony, verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. What did he just say? What's the Sabbath for? To give life or to take it? And then when he restores a man's hand, what do they plot on the Sabbath? They begin plotting his death over the Sabbath. What an irony, right? He's just called out their hearts. That's why they don't say anything. They're now weaponizing the Sabbath in order to kill when it was never meant to be that. Jesus feels both anger and grief, both rage and compassion. These religious leaders are dangerous and destructive, but he's also sad at the condition of their own hearts. They love enforcing the rules more than they love the restoration of image bearers. And Jesus heals them, heals the man, storms out in a rage. And what's fascinating is that the Pharisees are all about preserving Israel as a nation, preserving uh, Israel as a people. They're all about, they would, be the, they would be sort of the conservatives, so to speak. The Herodians are all about siding with Rome and going, let's preserve our power. Let's be sort of pro-government in that sense. They would be more like, like in that sense. And so it's fascinating that both of them see themselves as threatened by Jesus. Jesus is establishing this, this fraudulent system that the Pharisees have set up, but he's also threatening the, the relationship with Rome because he's calling himself a king. And so you get these strange people put together. This would be like, you know, I don't know how to what kind of analogy to put this. This would be like the, the key conservative leader aligning with the key liberal leader, key Republican, key Democrat going, we have to unite to take this guy out. Jesus is a threat to both sides. He exposes the idolatry of all people. He, he threatens the power of all of these systems. And so it's fascinating that these Pharisees go out and they held counsel with the Herodians against him to destroy him over his healing of a man on the Sabbath. Do you see how far from God they have gotten that even their religion has led them so far astray? The irony that they would want to kill him over restoring an image bearer a few applications we need to be careful of theological pride hardening our hearts that we think that we are so right and we begin to judge other people by our rightness and we end up missing the heart of God and realizing that we're dealing with image bearers whom God made who God is is redeeming who God is putting together that's not to say that truth doesn't matter it means a lot Jesus is going to get to that but to but to weaponize and add our own spin to things in such a way that we miss the work of God is something that both angers Jesus and grieves him. That someone in need of redemption would come to a place of worship with God's people, come to meet Jesus and be restored, that that would make people angry, I think makes Jesus angry and grieved, right? The Sabbath is not just rest and rule following, but it's about restoration and renewal. It's about celebrating God's creation and celebrating God's redemption. It was meant to mark God's people, to mark them off, and be an invitation to the world that our God is better than your God. Your God says do, our God says done. Come into his rest. Come into the restoration that he offers through Jesus, the eternal Sabbath. So then, Jesus moves out, verse 7. We see him by the sea with his fans and his foes. I think there's a picture, that's actually a picture of the synagogue and, and um Uh, where this event probably happened. If you want to go to the next slide there. There you go. That's the Sea of Galilee. Just try to picture yourself there. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. So Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. Uh, the, The whole point about naming these different places, you don't need to know what these places are. But here's essentially what he's saying. Those that would understand what these places mean would say, hey, people are coming from Galilee. That's to the west. People are coming from Judea. That's from the south. People are coming from beyond the Jordan. That's from the east. People are coming from Tyre and Sidon. That's from the north. People are coming from all different directions to come and hear and see Jesus. And what we're seeing is that it's not just Jews. It's also surprisingly Gentiles. It's people coming across from across the Jordan. People coming from another country, Tyre and Sidon. So it's just a way of, of describing that this is a very diverse group of people that is gathering around Jesus. And this is both good and bad. People are intrigued by Jesus, but why are they coming to him? They're coming because they want to get something from him. This great crowd heard all that he was doing and they came to him. And he's told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. Now that would be terrible, right? Like the God-man gets crushed by a bunch of people who want healing from him, right? But he's just getting mobbed. He's just getting mobbed by people who want things from him. And for he, this might freak some of you germaphobes out, he had healed many so that those who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. (laughs) He's getting coughed on and getting, he's just getting compressed in. Which just shows us a little bit of the humanity of Jesus, is that he's, he could be crushed by a crowd. He could be trampled. He can cast out demons, but he also can be crushed. That's sort of the irony, is that the all-powerful one is also vulnerable and needs some space. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. So Jesus is kind of a spectacle. Healings have created a crushing crowd of fans. We've got sort of this, like people are looking to get their Instagram picture with Jesus. They're wanting things from Jesus. They're wanting temporary solutions from him. He's nearly trampled. The disciples, perhaps they call in a favor from their old fishing buddies and say, hey, let's give him a little bit of space. Let's create a little bit of a barrier here. They get him out in a boat so he can have a little bit of space uh, from which to do what he needs to do. And the demons cannot help but be exposed. They cannot help but expose and cry out in desperation his identity. They see Jesus for who he is. They, the crowds seem to see Jesus as sort of a, like a, a, a miracle worker, you know? Um, but the demons see him as the son of God. And to this point... Only God himself at Jesus' at, at baptism has said, this is my beloved son. And now twice we've had demons go, hey, that's the son of God. Humans do not quite get it yet. They won't get it until the end of the book. That's sort of, that's sort of an under theme in this whole book. Not even an under theme, it's an overt theme, is will humans recognize the son of God? Demons do, God does. Everybody responds to him as the son of God, but will humans get it? And we'll have a surprising answer to that question at the end of the book. And we get this 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 um, again. Jesus tells them to be silent. We get this messianic secret in Mark that Jesus doesn't want himself publicly proclaimed yet, especially by demons. Ultimately, eventually, he wants himself proclaimed by people who have been blood, bought by his blood. But at this point, the messianic secret—the fact that he's the Son of God, that he's the Messiah—that is such a misunderstood concept at this point that he's very cautious about how quickly the word is getting out. So if you're reading in the book of Mark and you're wondering why doesn't Jesus want people to tell others about him, he obviously wants that from us today. The reason is is that he's still working out a plan. He's still trying to manage this and he has some teaching uh, to do. So ultimately Jesus wants his name proclaimed by people not demons and it's not yet time for that. So out of this fans and foes, demons and people, and the demons know who he is but they don't submit to him. The crowds are kind of enthralled by him but they don't quite get him yet and so he pulls himself further back and he goes up the mountain verse 13 he went up the mountain and called to him those whom he desired and they came to him and he appointed 12 whom he also called apostles so that they might be with him and might send he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons he appointed the 12 Simon who he gave the name Peter James the son of Zebedee and John the brother of James who he gave the name Boan. Why do I even try? That is the sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip, Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. So now we have a new setting. We have up the mountain, right? We've sort of moved up to sort of this pinnacle, this sort of pinnacle in the story, right? We've gone from hostility to crowds. Now we're kind of in this special sort of holy moment where God is calling, Jesus is calling out some people With a special responsibility before him. And I want you to notice, just like throughout this whole chapter, do you just notice that Jesus is always in control? Do you just notice that? (laughs) Everybody's orbiting Jesus. Like even the ones that are trying to take power from him, redirect him, Jesus is always in control at all times. He is sovereign over this whole situation. Just look at this phrase by phrase. He called to him those whom he desired. There's no application process, Jesus isn't checking references. He calls to himself. It says they came to him. His call was effectual. When he called to them, they came. Their call brought them to. They they responded to him. And I I always kind of think of the story of Lazarus, where Jesus comes to the to the opening of his grave. Says move the move the open up the grave. It says Lazarus come out, and Lazarus comes out. Right, like it's actually like the call that gives the life, right? It's like the word, God, God brings life by his word. And Lazarus had no, 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 other, no other response than to obey that call, right? And so they call, he's called to, he calls them to himself. That call was effectual. They came to him, those whom he called. And he appointed 12. So he set, he set them apart. Um, it's literally in the Greek, he made 12. He like created like a new people. He also named them apostles, which means sent out ones. So they have this new identity. So he makes a new people. He calls them out. He gives them a commission. He gives them a new name so that they might be with him. A right relationship to himself that he might send them out to preach, commissioning them as witnesses, and have authority to cast out demons to extend his relief ministry to the world. You see some Old Testament connections here? He creates them and names them like a new Adam, commissions them, right? Gives them a task to do. It's almost like a new humanity is being created here. He is creating a new people. He's commissioning them. He's empowering them. He's authorizing them. He's giving them a name. And he chooses 12. That's not by accident. It's almost like he's creating a renewed Israel. These guys are all Jewish people. They're all from the nation of Israel. And he's he's creating this 12. It's like there's this there's this people that is now being created that is to represent him in the world like Israel did, like an extension, like a fulfillment, like a, like a new and renewed Israel. And we get the essence of discipleship here. When he calls them, ultimately, first and foremost, it's to be with him. So when Jesus calls his disciples, it's for them to be in a relationship with him. The fundamental reality of a Christian is that they're with Jesus. They're united to Jesus. It's not about, it's not about what we do, but it's about who we know. It's about union with Jesus Christ. So isn't that interesting that he called them that they might be with him in a relationship with Jesus? Not just a get-out-of-hell-free card, not just have their sins forgiven, but that they might be in relationship with Jesus, relationship with God through Jesus. So that first essential element of discipleship is that, do you have a relationship with Jesus? He called them to be with him. The second part of discipleship is they were called to preach. So there's a verbal element of their discipleship, but they're meant to be a witness, a testimony, to speak words. Jesus called them by his word. He's going to fill them with his word so that they might proclaim his word. That's a second element of discipleship, not just to be with him, but to preach, to proclaim him. And then we have this behavioral, or we have this missional aspect where they were to heal, to restore and relieve what has been broken in the world, right? They were authorized to go and cast out demons, to be agents of good in the world to love their neighbors, to find things that are broken in the world and go make them better, right? That they were authorized by Jesus to go and act and live in ways that might relieve the curse, that might push back the evil. So we are called to, I think, these, these, these disciples are called to ultimately in this epic sense, the apostles had this ability to go to restore and relieve suffering, to proclaim in his name with power and to be with Jesus. But that same, that same call is to us as disciples, to all disciples, that we would come to Jesus so that we would know him, we would proclaim him in the world, and that we might find ways to spend our life and our resources in order to relieve suffering and to, to restore the image of God in people, to restore the dignity, to push against those things that destroy the world. Acts 4.13, after Jesus ascends, and he dies, he ascends into heaven, rises again, ascends into heaven, make sure I get the order right, ascends into heaven, sends his Holy Spirit, and as these disciples are now serving him they're now witnesses for him in acts 4:13, it says this when they saw the boldness of peter and john their proclamation and perceived that they were uneducated common men they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with jesus one of the marks of these apostles going forward was not their education how smart they were it was their boldness because they had been with jesus it was the relationship it was the proclamation it was how they treated people right you saw that happen Immediately after, these early Christians are marked by being with Jesus. I guess we could say, if we were to put it in our own language, that they were called to enjoy Jesus, display Jesus, and share Jesus. To enjoy, display, and share. To know him, to be with him in relationship. To display him by doing the works that he would do. And to share him by proclaiming. Proclaiming through preaching what it is to know and follow God. To know Jesus. To know the truth. One commentator said, In every respect, this new community is Jesus' doing. These guys didn't get together and go, hey, let's create a society and see if Jesus wants to join us, right? No, Jesus created them as a people. They didn't do it to get on their own. They did it in response to the call of Jesus. It was a community of relationship, a community of the word, a community of good works. And that's the community that he establishes through his church. That's what we're called to be as a church is people that know Jesus. Like, I, I hope that when someone comes in here and goes, these people, it's like they've been with Jesus. Like, when I come into this service, it's like I feel like I've been welcomed by Jesus. That's part of why that we do the welcome that we do. Welcome in the name of Jesus. And, and they proclaim. They, they, they preach, and they sometimes preach really long. <laughs> they proclaim the word. And then they do whatever good they can find to do in each other's lives and in the world. They find things in the authority of Jesus a community of relationship, word, and deed, of enjoying, displaying, and sharing Jesus. So a few applications. If you're a Christian, it's because Jesus has called you to himself. He's called you out of darkness into light. Jesus says in John 15, 16, I didn't, you didn't choose me. I chose you and appointed that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, that it will last. And it's fascinating that Jesus calls all kinds of surprising and diverse people. He, he, he calls, like, really, like, none of these guys. None of these guys, if they filled out an application, would make the cut. Like, these, are not, these are not the superstars. These are the ordinary guys. And he puts people together that do not go together. He puts a tax collector, Matthew, probably Thaddeus here. We learned about him last week. He's a tax collector, which means that he has kind of betrayed his own people to collect taxes from Rome on behalf of Rome. And so, like, he's sort of like a traitor to his people. And then you've got a zealot. You've got Simon the Zealot. And zealots, what they do is they're, like, organizing uprisings to overthrow Rome. So you've got a tax collector who's a sellout for Rome. And he's having to, like, bunk with the guy that starts riots to overthrow Rome. And those guys are, like, those guys have to, like, get along somehow because they've both been called by Jesus. Jesus is going to confront both of them in their sin and their idolatry. And he's also going to redeem. And he's going to use what's good about them to advance his mission. Jesus puts people together that would have no reason being together if it weren't for Jesus. And that might be true in this room. Like if we really knew some of the things about each other, we might not be friends. (laughs) But because of Jesus, because we're all being redeemed, we're all being challenged, we're all being shaped We're all tuning to the same fork. We're all coming to the same king. He brings us together, and we have this community that's being built that does not make sense in any earthly sense. There must be a God who's putting this together, that's creating this new people. And then he's even got a betrayer in there, Judas Iscariot. Jesus knows what he's doing, and yet he puts Judas Iscariot on the team. The word Iscariot there for Judas could mean that ish just means man, from Kirioth, which is just outside Jerusalem but it also could mean dagger so either this is the man from Kirioth, or Iscariot could mean the man of the dagger the violent one the betrayer right it's just fascinating and he he nicknames he nicknames James and John sons of thunder which means these guys must have been a handful to deal with they had big personalities. At one point in the Gospels, Jesus is sort of rejected in this one town, and they go, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy them? <laughs> just like, it's almost like Jesus like, guys, we're not doing the call down fire from heaven thing. Like, that's just not, that's not our strategy at this point. We're not going to do that. So he just puts such strange people together in this new community. It's like anybody can get in if they're called by Jesus. Because the qualifications are not what side, what political side you're on, what you have and haven't done, what you should and shouldn't have done, your intellect, your you know, any of that stuff. The, the reality is, is, has Jesus called you to himself? And if so, then you're reconciled to him. You're to be with him, but you're also to be with others. He calls them not just to a relationship with himself, but a community. That they're to love each other as brothers and sisters, which we're going to get to in a second. So that brings us to verse 20, verses 20 through 30, by the sea with some fans and foes. So then he went home. I used to think this was Nazareth. I think it's actually Capernaum because it talks about Capernaum as being his home in the book of Mark. So I think he's coming back to Capernaum, which is a city by the sea. Like that's actually like right there. It's just like almost would slip slip into the sea if it wasn't careful. It's just right there. So we're back by the sea again in a crowd. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. That's an interesting detail. I wonder if Peter, as he's relaying this information to Mark, that's probably who's behind this gospel, if he doesn't remember being hungry, right? Like this is something an eyewitness would remember, that they could not even eat. And when his father, family heard it, they went out to seize him. So his family has come up from Nazareth, and uh, they've heard about what Jesus is doing, and they're not too happy about it. And so they want to seize him. The word there is for arrest. They want Jesus arrested. They're gonna like capture him, tie him up, take him back home because he's crazy. That's what he says. For they were saying he is out of his mind. The scribes came down from Jerusalem. So now we got the big dogs from Jerusalem. We've got like the capital city. We've got the big scribes. Like Jesus has created just enough offensiveness. He has offended the religious establishment to such an extent that his family is like, "Whoa, we got to get him out of this thing. He's going crazy." And we got the big dogs. We got scribes from Jerusalem. We've got. We've got upper management involved here. They have traveled over 100 miles to come and deal with Jesus. So this has really escalated pretty severely. And what they're saying is that he is possessed by Beelzebub, Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. So he's not the son of God. He is under the influence and power of the evil one, is what they're saying. So his family is saying that he's mad, and the... Scribes are saying he's bad. Um, I think he's saying I'm rad. I don't know. I don't know. That, was too, that was too bad. I'm sorry. I'll strike that from the record. But that, you, you see Jesus' foes are, are surprising. It's the religious establishment. and Now it's from Jerusalem. Like this is, the, this, is, this is from the capital. This is from the temple itself coming. He's got his family that's out to get him here at this point. They're wanting to subdue him, lock him up for a while till he gets his head screwed on straight. He's being accused of being possessed under the control of... of, Like, he is casting out demons because he's under control of the prince of demons. And so he addresses this. He addresses them in parables. He uses two parables here. He says, how can Satan cast out Satan? He's going, if that's the evil one's strategy is to cast out Satan, (laughs) that's a terrible strategy. Like punching yourself in the face, right? Like, you just... This is not a good strategy. So Satan cannot rise against Satan. And if a house is divided itself, that house cannot stand... And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Uh, so it's kind of a win-win. Either I'm God and I'm def- destroying the works of Satan, or Satan is so ridiculous in his strategy that it's going to collapse anyway, right? It doesn't make sense. Your accusations don't hold up. And then in parable number two, res- response number two, he says, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. And indeed he must... and, and Then indeed he may plunder his house. So he's he's like he's talking about someone who's guarding their house. And for a thief to come in and get stuff, they've got to subdue the one who's guarding it. Well, if if this world is being controlled by Satan, someone more powerful than Satan must come and overcome Satan, and then he can plunder people from Satan's dominion. So instead, his point here being is not only would this be a bad strategy for the kingdom of darkness to fight against itself, but also I am not under the control of Satan. I am over Satan. What you're, no, what you're seeing here is me overcoming Satan. I'm not under his control. He is under my control, and I am pillaging him. I am stealing people from his influence, from his domain. Who is the only one powerful enough to be over Satan? Well, that's God. He's claiming to be God. I am coming in. I am subduing the evil one. I'm not under his influence. I don't work for him. He works for me, and I'm tying him up, and I'm pillaging him. And I am taking people from his possession. And then Jesus issues the strongest possible warning. He says, verse 28, whenever he says truly, it's the word amen, truly, he's meaning to like get your attention, look me in the eye, right? I'm about to tell you something that's really, really important. So he says, truly I say to you. And Most teachers of the law would go, thus saith the Lord. Jesus is going, thus say me. Truly I say to you. He's appealing to his own authority as God. So just like the prophets or the scribes or the Pharisees would say, well, it says in the scriptures, Jesus is going, I'm saying to you, this is how it is. All sins will be forgiven the Son of Man. That's good. And whatever blasphemies they utter, that's good. Because actually right now, his own family is sort of blaspheming against him. But some of them are going to turn, which means they can be forgiven, right? You can be wrong on Jesus for a while and still turn from that. You can be forgiven of that. He says, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And then he gives what exactly they are doing, what that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. It is when you know better, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is when you know the scriptures really well. You know they point to Jesus. You're seeing the work of Jesus, and you're saying that that's satanic. it's it's ascribing the work of Jesus as being a evil thing. And when one is doing that, when one is doing that, one is resisting and blaspheming the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the one who opens our eyes to Jesus. And so when he is coming and he is looking to open our eyes to Jesus, open our hearts to Jesus, and we call that evil, then we are indeed cutting ourselves off from Jesus himself. We're resisting the work of the Holy Spirit. Truly, I say to you, And so this is something that these religious leaders are in danger of doing. He hasn't said that they've done it yet. But he is warning them that they are on a track or trajectory to prove that they no longer have forgiveness, that they don't have forgiveness. It's not that they had it and lost it. It's that they're going to cut themselves off from it. Because the Holy Spirit is clearly at work here. They're the spiritual leaders. They're the ones that have influence over people. And they're actually twisting it completely upside down. They're hardening their hearts in such a way that they're resisting the Holy Spirit, they're resisting their eyes being opened to Jesus, and they're blinding other people to it too. This is really bad. He's saying like, if you persist in this, you're headed down a road, and there can be a point of no return. Jesus renders a divine verdict on what will and will not receive divine forgiveness. This is an authoritative statement of Jesus. He's saying what what, what will and will not be forgiven. Temporary misunderstandings of Jesus can be repented of and forgiven. His family's gonna do that. Even some of the Pharisees and religious leaders will turn at some point. Their rejection of him is not permanent. It's possible to turn. But a permanent resistance to the clear work of the Holy Spirit cannot be repented of and therefore not forgiven. You can go so far down that road that you're unable to turn back. And we need to be careful. Jesus hasn't actually said that they've reached this point. He isn't calling anyone out saying they're doing that. He's giving a warning to go, hey, this is, it is possible to call what is good evil for so long that there isn't a turn back. One pastor, I think, did a good job of of defining this. He says, blasphemy of the Spirit is a conscious, you know what you're doing, clear, consistent repudiation by those who know better, particularly spiritual leaders, with an intentional disposition. Not merely just an act that you did one time, but a disposition towards a resistance to the things of God when you know better. One pastor described it as spiritual frostbite. Your hands start to get cold. Your body begins to warn you, like, this is uncomfortable. And you persist. People say, hey, your fingers are starting to turn a different color. Maybe get them inside. Maybe cover them up. And you persist, and you don't. There does come a point where if your hands are out in the cold for so long, your fingers can't be recovered in that sense. And what he's saying is that there is a kind here, there is a temptation, there is a danger that these Pharisees are headed on a trajectory of spiritual frostbite, of resisting the Holy Spirit to such an extent that there is a point sort of of no return where which, in which God will just let them have what they want, let them receive the consequences of that. And so that's a scary thing to think about. This is especially a danger for religious leaders of high theological training who are influencing others. And just by way of application, if you are concerned that you might have or might commit the unforgivable sin of blasphemy against the Spirit, just that concern itself is evidence that you haven't and you won't. Because they're going to hear this warning from Jesus and they're going to press right on through. But if you hear that warning and it just sort of makes you just a little bit concerned in the moment, that is exactly what the warning's meant to do, right? Not to unsettle you, but just to go, I hear the warning and I I heed the warning. Does that make sense? So if you're afraid that maybe you've committed that sin, the fact that you're worried that you might have is itself evidence that you haven't. And even Jesus' family themselves, while in league on the wrong side of him right now, even some of them will turn and then we have him in the house with his family, verses thirty-one through thirty-five. We're almost done. And his mother and his brothers came and, standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And the crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, "Your mother and your brothers are outside; they're seeking you." And he answered them, "Who are my mother and my brothers?" That's a weird question, Jesus. They're right out. We just told you, <laughs> right out there. He's going, "No, this is an opportunity to tell you about what true family is, what true relationship with me is like." And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. What he's saying is that you can't actually physically be born into this family of faith. You're not born into a right relationship with God. You have to be called into it. You have to receive it by faith. You have to do the will of the Father. And there's such a scandal here, because he's saying that biological family is not actually supreme. Now, if you're an Israelite, this is just crazy to think about. The biological family is not supreme. It's important. Jesus is not undermining the biological family in any way. But he is saying that in terms of a right standing before God or in terms of access to me, they don't get to just play the mom or brother card. Like, they don't have special access because we have some of the same DNA. It has to be a spiritual DNA that makes us true family. And remember, Israel is just one giant big family. This is sort of undermining the whole thing. That oh, this is a family put together by faith, by a right response to Jesus, by calling. And what, another scandal here is that mothers and sisters are put on equal familial footing as brothers. Here is my brother and my sister and my mother. Right. This is a new. This is a new family of faith, where all disciples have an equal relationship with Jesus. All are on equal standing before Jesus. And for my Catholic friends out there, this creates a bit of a problem because those who believe in the Roman Catholic theology believe that, that Mary was a perpetual virgin. Well, Jesus has brothers, so that's a problem. They were not all miraculously born. They're naturally born. And also, she's not sinless because she's wrong on Jesus right now, right? Jesus himself is saying, right now, my mother is not inside the family, Right? At least that's kind of what he's implying a little bit here. I don't know. Like, they work it out. Maybe this is just a moment of lapse, but she's certainly not sinless. She certainly will reverse it. She'll certainly be forgiven. But that is a problem there. And here we get this sandwich, this family sandwich. You know, we talked about Mark and Sandwiches, where his family at the beginning, teaching in the middle, and then another, he closes the story. That Mark and Sandwich, the whole point is like, who are Jesus' true family? That's the whole point of this sandwich. Is that who is Jesus' true family? It's those who rightly respond to him by faith. So, a few applications as we just think about this whole chapter. I know I just threw a ton at you. <laughs> I hope the Holy Spirit is sorting it out in your own heart, right? That whatever it is, there's one or two things you can grab onto here. But here's a question I want you to wrestle with Where are you at with Jesus? Are you on the inside or the outside? Are you a foe, a fan, or family? Are you resisting Jesus? Be careful. There's a warning in this passage. Be careful in your resistance. There can be a point where the Holy Spirit is resisted too much. Are you a fan? I just kind of hear when Jesus is a benefit to you then you're interested but there'll be something else that's more interesting a little bit later. Are you family? Like he's called you to be with him to proclaim him, to extend his mission in the world? Does he call you a brother or sister? And do you mar- bear the marks of discipleship, a vibrant relationship with Jesus in community, a bold verbal witness for who Jesus is, compassionate surface, trying to relieve spiritual and physical suffering? And that's where we're at. And what we have as we transition here to the Lord's Supper is the Lord's Supper is a family meal where Jesus at the head of the table calls those who have put their faith and trust in him to gather around his table, to be family together, to be brothers and sisters together. So if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus and you're walking in relationship with him, not perfectly, but you're, you're walking with him, then we encourage you to consider um, sharing in the Lord's Supper with us today. It's always, that, that's, a, that's a bare minimum. We need to be part of God's family. We need to be putting our faith and trust in Jesus to partake in the Lord's Supper. I think it's also good if we've been baptized and we belong to a church that it's a family meal, that we belong to a church family. So I think the Lord's Supper represents all of those things. And so let's just take a moment in the quietness of our own heart to do business with God. If you've not put your faith and trust in Jesus yet, then I would encourage you right now to hear his call and to come to him. Don't worry about the Lord's table. Worry about your relationship with Jesus. But if you're in a relationship with Jesus, and you're walking with him, walking in faithfulness, then prepare your hearts even now partake in the Lord's Supper. I'll give you just a moment and then I'll pray and I think the band will come up and maybe you guys can just sing that song as sort of background as we as we partake. Oh God we thank you for your word and this was such a blitz mark puts us on a fast pace and we took on a lot today I just pray that you would cause some aspect of this story that we saw ourselves in it that we saw Jesus and that we heard his call uh, to himself. God, I pray that you'd be convicting hearts right now. And as we come to your table, we thank you for this good gift uh, to remind us of what has brought us to the table, which is your death and your resurrection on our behalf. Uh, God, as we think about the bread, may we think of your broken body on our behalf. As we think of the shed of the, of the juice, we think of your shed blood making an atonement for our sins. And we thank you that you have reversed the curse, you have overcome the grave, you have forgiven our sins through Jesus Christ. And by faith we may draw near to you and to one another in this new family of faith. Uh, God, we give thanks for that. And uh, just pray that you would would commune with your people as we commune with you um, through this ordinance. In Jesus' name, amen.